0: Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your hosts, Nick Shermans and Erin Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Investment advisory services offered through Pure Portfolios, a registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese work for Pure Portfolios. Any opinions expressed by Nick and Aaron or any podcast guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pure Portfolios. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. It should not be construed as legal or tax advice and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified attorney or tax professional. Clients of peer portfolios may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. This information is not an offer or solicitation to buy or sell securities. The information contained may have been compiled from third-party sources and is believed to be reliable.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Blind Spot. Today we are going to be talking all about planning for a recession. It's no secret that 2022 has been a difficult year for the markets and for investors, and there is a lot of hot recession talk in the media these days. Your friends are talking about it, your coworkers are talking about it. So in this episode of Blind Spots, we are going to be discussing how you can prepare for a recession.
2: I don't understand why that's such a buzzword, like everyone that I talk to is obsessed about whether we're in a recession or not. And a recession actually is often called in hindsight, mm-hmm. right? So so there's several entities that track these things and it's not unusual for us to get a year past, right? So this is, a, this is a difficult time. So let's say in the summer of 2023, it's not unusual for these government entities to call a recession back in the first quarter of 2022 and ending in the third quarter of 2022. So mm-hmm. so we could be in a recession right now, and no one would know it for six months. Yeah. But yet everyone's trying to guess when this is going to happen. And when, when we look at recessions and bear markets, sure, market performance, when you look back at the 14 bear markets post-World War II, S&P returns tend to be a little worse in recessions, but it's, but it's actually pretty close. It's, it's, it's not worth all the extra commentary and emotion and wondering that humans spend on this topic.
1: Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but
2: a recession
1: in its official definition is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP,
2: negative GDP growth. So we we Hello actually hit that uh, yeah. in the first quarter of 2022 once. Yes, so so we've got one quarter, and then the there's a a GDP tracker from the at Atlanta Fed that actually is projecting close to zero growth, but It's really hard to forecast growth. You know, a lot of these uh, tools are often wrong. So, I mean, if we get a recession or not, it's not really material. Like you look at what's happened in financial markets. This has been, you know, the Fed keeps talking about a soft landing, trying to balance inflation and rates going up. We've already had a hard landing in my opinion. So so when you look at the wealth destruction, as of last Friday, the bond market has lost two and a half trillion dollars. The equity markets have lost twelve and a half trillion dollars. This has been the largest wealth destruction in modern history. So, call call it a recession or not, people are feeling pain. Um, so, again, a lot of this hot recession talk, it's just fodder. I mean, it's 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 good for conversation, I guess, but it's 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 not really material, in my opinion. We have a lot of
1: people ask us about how they can prepare for a recession. People want to know what happens next. So, we talk a lot about mitigating damage without having an opinion about what the economy does, what the market does next. So you just talked about how typically a recession is called after it's already happened. So how can people prepare?
2: For sure. That? And I think the first thing that you need to do is let go of the recession thing. Yeah, we might be in a recession. We might not be. Who cares, right? What we can expect, and if we're being honest with ourselves, is, is we're all going to experience some level of financial pain given what's happened, if there's a recession or not, our focus should turn on mitigating damage, right? So we've outlined a few things that are are the low-hanging fruit, as we call it, that someone could do to mitigate damage without having a prediction, without playing the market oracle, without guessing if there's a recession or not. Tan- tangible things that you can control that should tighten up your plan.
1: Before we jump into that, give me the persona of someone who is, asking these questions because we have kind of outlined this on the person who's asking these questions but they're not really paying attention to the right thing they're they're looking at all of the outside factors that they can't control so tell me about that person.
2: Yeah, so first, you know, I want to be upfront about something. We've had 14 recessions post post World War II with an average decline of 32% for the S&P 500. So what that means is it's normal to get recessions they they happen every 6 to 7 years okay so people are getting all worked up like look you can set your watch to this this is normal this is this is the other part of the cycle so accept these outcomes it's, it's it's not a a sign that things are broken or that the world's that the world's going to end like i actually had someone tell me on a client call the other day that we would be lucky if we're all around in 10 years and i'm thinking like what what the hell are you reading like, go outside, get off your phone, quit watching cNbc or 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 googling things to confirm your negative bias. Like that that's just ridiculous. and And if that's the case, if I'm not going to be here in ten years, that that further bolsters my point. Like like, you want to spend your last days locked inside staring at your phone and stock prices and all that. That's like, come on,
1: that is an extreme doomsdayer if I've ever heard one. But to your point, I mean, if you truly believe that the world, is going to end or we're all not going to be around in 10 years. I mean, why does this really even matter anyways? Like, what are we doing here?
2: Right. So back to your question. So this is a persona. This is not any one person. But this is this is very common and it can be frustrating for us when someone is asking about a recession and what the market does next and they're really nervous and they might want to sell everything and go to cash and they're just constantly in this web of, Negative news, and they're seeking opinions that validate their pessimistic views. They've gone way off the rails. Okay, on, on on the back end, on on this person's plan. Let's call this person Bert. Okay, what what Bert is actually doing? Bert, and again, Bert, Bert is the nervous Nelly. Bert is leasing a luxury car for a thousand a month. He owns five pieces of real estate, and they're all levered to the hilt. He's got a, he just tapped a home equity line of credit, and he's looking to buy another house. He's borrowed against his portfolio to buy a rental property. The same portfolio has a 25% weighting to a risky EV car maker, Um, and he just wrote a $200,000 check to help his son start a business, okay? So if Bert is truly worried about a recession, his actions are not lining up with that. Mm-hmm. So Bert's focused on external factors that have that he has no control over, while he's le- while he's leaking oil on the back end. So yeah. what we're trying to do is just to flip that around. Okay, Bert, forget about what the Fed's doing. Forget about what the market's doing. You need to tighten up all this crap. Or if we do get a recession, you are a domino away from financial ruin.
1: It's like a house of cards, and you're just going to like pull out the bottom one. So. Let's get into all the things that you can control. How can someone tighten up their overall financial picture so that they can be prepared for a recession or a tough time?
2: Yeah. So we're going to be doing the opposite of what Bert's doing, or this is what Bert should be doing. Okay. So if you find yourself freaking out or feeling helpless or obsessing about the things that you can't control, this is what you should be doing. Okay, the first thing, and you should have done this yesterday, like like you should do this a couple times a year, is stress test your portfolio. So stress testing basically means we would say, okay, we're, we're going to run a simulation, okay? The S&P is going to be down 30%. We would want to understand how your portfolio would react in an environment like that. So we would take every one of your holdings and basically shock it for in an environment where the S&P is down by 30%. And we would give you an idea of how much pain you would incur, okay? If your portfolio is down by 35% or 25%, you might say, hey, whoa, whoa, that's, a, that's an outcome I'm not comfortable with. Then we would go back to the drawing board to tighten up risk in your portfolio. A lot of people think that you make portfolio changes once the stuff hits the fan right, the market drops by 30%, I go back to the drawing board and make a bunch of changes. That's a reactive approach, that's not helpful. So the first thing we we would be looking to do is build a portfolio that reflects the way that you feel about risk, and then stress test that so you fully understand the range of outcomes, especially on the downside.
1: Okay, the next one is tightening up expenses. So we talked about Bert, how he has his luxury car leased, just wrote a check for two hundred thousand for his son he's got all of these different expenses these are things that he can control
2: bert's a fun name to say i'm just going to put that out there so bert bert built his lifestyle and budget around the market always going up and this is not uncommon so the last 10 years the market has experienced a, a nice run of of gains what people have done was built that expectation of the market going up into their plan right so they've gotten used to taking instead of 4% out of their portfolio maybe taking 8% and and they've gotten away with it because the market has covered that up but once that changes once the tide goes out it's not the worst idea to go back in your budget and look for areas to tighten up okay that's not always a fun thing to do some people don't like to do that we, you know we had a a person tell us yesterday that they don't budget, they don't want to budget, but yet they were worried about what the market does next. And it's like, look, this is this is the low-hanging fruit. I mean, we 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 run thousands of plans a year. And the biggest input is how much people spend a year. Okay. Now, we're not saying work your whole life, build, build wealth, and live off of top ramen and water. But when when times get tough, you know, again, we're we're all going to experience pain. Look internally and see what you can trim out.
1: Yeah, people always look at budgeting as this restrictive um, exercise, something that's going to change the way that they live their life. They're not going to be able to enjoy all of these things that they once enjoyed. But budgeting is really just looking at what's coming in and what's going out and having an, an idea of what that number actually is. And that doesn't mean that you have to trim that back like immensely. You still want to be able to spend money on the things that are important to you, but Having an understanding of where your money is being allocated every month is important because, or you might come up with some things that you can trim back. Okay, on to the next one. Let's talk about people who are a little over leveraged.
2: So I'm not a pro debt guy. I'm not an anti debt guy. I think, again, the last 10 years have incentivized people to take on debt because rates were low. Mm -hmm. So it was a very easy thing to do it looks like that's changing and i i'm i'm just uncomfortable with the notion of taking additional debt when i'm retired like my 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 human capital my future earning capacity is n- near the end of the line and i'm taking on debt like that just seems like it's not a natural progression so what, what we've seen is people taking out a home equity line of credit, taking a loan against their investment portfolio, um, actually doing the opposite of, da- of, of downsizing their home, but, but upsizing, taking on additional mortgage debt. So, so all of these things can just push you closer to the risk of ruin. Like if, if we're trying to make it so you're financially unbreakable, this is just another piece that makes, it, makes your plan a little more fragile. So just be mindful of your overall debt exposure, especially if that debt is adjustable. So a lot of these lines of credit against an investment portfolio are variable, meaning if rates go up, then your interest payment goes up.
1: Yeah, especially if it is borrowed on your portfolio, you might start having margin calls, things that you need to cover. And if you don't have the liquid cash to do that, you will all of a sudden have a domino effect where you might need to sell some stock, but your stock is down that depending on what kind of account it is, it's probably a taxable account. You may incur some capital gains, so it can be a snowball effect. Okay. How about a risk management plan for investments?
2: Yes. So I'm, I'm amazed at how often a do it yourself investor or even a professional advisor does not have a risk management plan right so i'm i'm not talking about a market timing plan i'm not talking about going from fully invested to 100% cash i'm talking about a a framework a process an orderly predetermined method for going from 60% equities say to 45% equities right we're we're dialing down risk rather than market timing okay so if 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 you're doing your own investing if you're working with an advisor like i just saw an interesting graph um so the uh, there's this, there's this entity that publishes household ownership percentage of equities. and they just published their um, May 2022 graph or data set. And it basically showed that retail investors haven't really changed their equity exposure given what's happened in 2022, which which is not the worst thing. I mean, if you have 20 or 30 years to invest, yeah, that's great, that's fine. You can stay the course. But if you're 65, if you're living off your portfolio and you don't have a framework for managing risk or you're not invested correctly, that could be um, a catastrophic thing because although the equity markets are down by 20% this year, I've noticed in potential client portfolios, a lot of retail investor performance is much, much worse. And you know, I just looked at some numbers, uh, the Russell 3000 index, which is basically a snapshot of the US stock market. If, if you're picking stocks, Right, which a lot of people do, a lot of advisors do, a lot of DIY investors do. The average stock in the Russell 3000 index is down by 44%. And I think that's part of the reason why people feel worse than they did, or worse now than they did during the COVID sell off, and they feel as bad as they did during the financial crisis in 2008. A lot of investors piled into big tech stocks, and a lot of those stocks are down 40% from their all time highs. So, this is a long way of saying, Understand your risk exposures for one, and that goes back to my first point about stress testing the portfolio, but have a framework for dialing down risk, right? I think stay the course is fine advice. If you're if you're 25, if you're 35, if you're 45, staying the course might not be the best approach if you're 65 or 70 and, and you're retired and drawing off your portfolio.
1: Yeah, and Nick wrote a really great blog a while ago about staying the course or being told to stay the course, so I will link that down.
2: Know that when your advisor tells you to stay the course, that's the easiest path for them, right? They, they have to do nothing, and they're communicating to you to try to calm you down and keep you as a client. So I think that's, again, it's okay advice for some people, but for, for those that are needing their investable assets to supplement their lifestyle, that might not be the best advice.
1: Since we're on the topic of risk management, do you want to talk about und- unwinding concentrated positions?
2: yeah so this is a great opportunity to unwind a concentrated position so so a position that makes up a higher percentage of your portfolio than you would like it to so we we see this for people that work in big tech companies you know they have stock options and their their company stock has become a large percentage of their investable assets so a great opportunity to chip away at some of those positions that might be underwater or um, at a less capital gain than they were at this time last year, mm-hmm. a- another good opportunity would be selling a legacy position, uh, like an old like an old mutual fund. So so a lot of potential clients that that we come across have bounced from broker to broker and they've accumulated just a bunch of garbage over the years, a, a, you know, a, a random hodgepodge of mutual funds. This is a great time to unwind those too, because unlike the last 10 years, we, we now have unrealized losses since pretty much every asset class is down this year to offset those embedded gains. So getting rid of concentrations, getting rid of unwanted positions, this is a great year to do it because again, we have losses.
1: Okay. How about Roth conversion? There's a lot of talk, a lot of blog posts news articles about Roth conversions, people get really hung up on the idea that they need to do a Roth conversion.
2: What's, what's confounding to me, and I think you can attest to this, Aaron, is, is that the Roth conversion chatter is loudest when markets are up. I mean, like last year we had mm-hmm. a lot of clients asking about a conversion um, yeah. when the market was making all-time highs, and that's actually the worst time to do a conversion. Mm-hmm. So, so one, I think people need to model it, it, uh, model in their financial plan, one, one outcome running a conversion, another not running a conversion and seeing how that impacts, seeing how that runs out over the next 10 to 15 years. Like, like we don't want to run a conversion just for the sake of doing that because you're going to be saddled with the tax bill. So does a Roth conversion have a material effect on your financial plan? Maybe, maybe it doesn't. Okay. The second thing, and I, kind of touched on this, it's better to do a conversion when the markets are down, right? But it that probably feels pretty uncomfortable because one, your, your portfolios are down and you're gonna convert and create a taxable event. So your assets are down, you're, you're gonna have a tax bill at the end of the year, but if, if if you run it out for 10 years and you convert at a market bottom and and, and you convert money to a Roth and the market rebounds, all of a sudden you have this growing pot of tax-free money for the rest of your life. So it's a it's a bit of a mental warfare thing, but long story short, it's better to do conversions when the market is low rather than at all-time highs.
1: Yeah, I think people here are fascinated with the idea of having tax-free money in retirement. And so that's going to be the absolute best thing for them. But for the people that we have run the scenario for, um, it's been surprising how many people it is not the best option for you end up paying more taxes on the front end or over your lifetime and it just doesn't just doesn't make sense it's not you don't really get ahead by doing it
2: well and there's also this subset of people that are into projecting what future tax rates look like yeah and I've heard people say oh tax tax rates are going up in 2025 now I need to do a conversion it's like it's Damn near impossible to predict what tax rates are gonna be. Sure, this country is saddled with a lot of debt, but don't do a conversion just because you're trying to play the gypsy and, and project where tax rates are gonna be from year to year. That's that's uh not the correct mindset. Yeah.
1: Okay. Hey, how about modeling worst case scenarios? This is when the stuff really hits the fan. We want to make sure that your plan is airtight.
2: Yeah, so so it's okay to to worry about things and have concern and make sure that your um, plan is airtight, we can run any doomsday scenario that you can think of. So back to our friend, Bert, if Bert's worried about a market event or lower future returns or a loss of income, a loss of a pension, um, you know, a healthcare, a healthcare event, we can bake all of those ugly scenarios into a financial plan, run it out for 20 or 30 years, if your plan still is successful that's a pretty empowering place to be so you don't have to make emotional decisions you don't have to worry for no reason but if you are worried about something let's run the scenario for you and give you evidence give you data because money is emotional markets can be emotional you know there's a lot of bad news out there we we tend to always go back to the evidence and you know again we can't protect people from themselves, but we can give them information to make better decisions. Uh, and modeling ugly scenarios is part of that.
1: Yeah, I think that doing that helps give people peace of mind. And it's also just an eye opener to, it's, it's a good visual way to show someone that you don't necessarily have to worry about all of these things that are truly out of your control. But we've planned for it, we've talked about it, and come hell or high water, if it happens, then you're prepared. So moving on to the lovely emergency fund
2: yeah and I hate I hate that Maybe term <laughs> I mean I think they should call it something else I mean cash is so if if we've learned anything over the last year or so you know cash got a bad rap over the last 10 years really like it made no sense to hold cash one rates were low you couldn't you couldn't get anything in a in a CD or a savings account so people just invested it okay but the last Year has been really ugly and messy, and I think that that confirms the age-old age adage that you should have some cash. Now, personally, I don't. I don't believe you should have like a, a hard and fast number, like six months or twelve months of expenses. I mean, that's fine if you want to anchor to that. You know, I think it depends on some other factors, like how risky your employment income is, if you're retired or not, if your spouse works or not. So, like most things in finance, it's not black or white. Um, but The biggest takeaway is that cash can be a weapon. Like I think of cash as dry powder, an opportunity to pounce. When the stuff hits the fan, when people are selling and acting all crazy, that's a great time to allocate capital. Most people do the opposite, right? They sell stuff and freak out. Long story short, cash is a weapon. It's okay to have cash. Cash is not a bad thing to have. So figure out the number that works for you and your spouse and family and 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 whatnot and think of it as your your opportunity fund
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i always tell people that the three to six month thing is a good place to start but it's a lot of it's around comfortability like you talked about your your income all those different factors but i mean we know some people that just like having 12 months worth of expenses in a savings account and Mm -hmm. that's what works for them that's great because if Someone told you, no, six months is the rule and invest the rest. And that makes you panic and makes you not feel good. And you can't sleep at night because you don't have that in your checking account. That's not helpful for anyone. So no. you kind of have to just revert to what works for you because everyone's different.
2: But, That's right, Aaron. That's
1: last it. but not least, everyone's favorite topic, taxes.
2: Yeah. So, so I've noticed this quite often. If, if you have a taxable account, so I'm not talking about a retirement account talking about after-tax money, money you paid taxes on that you've invested. People leak oil in these types of accounts all the time. And there's a couple culprits. One is targeting income strategies in these types of accounts. So dividend income is probably the biggest offender, and, and I have nothing against dividend type investment strategies. But if you want to do those, own those in a qualified account. Because if, if you have a taxable account, spinning off dividend income, all of that is taxable. There's no way to shelter that income from taxes. Okay. Mm -hmm. The second thing is mutual funds. Okay. First, it was just active mutual funds. So an active mutual fund is just a fund where the manager is buying and selling stocks or bonds or commodities or real estate trying to beat an index. Okay. The more activity, the more buying and selling that that manager does, the more likely it is they're going to pass on capital gains to you. Okay, so you can continue to own a fund, you're not buying and selling, and you're getting hammered with capital gains at the end of the year, okay? That is not efficient. So don't own mutual funds in taxable accounts. You want to take that a step further. Don't own active mutual funds at all because they are not efficient. They're expensive. They don't perform well. And I've written many a blog on this. Uh and the third thing, and this is, this is a newer thing, and this is actually coming more in vogue and getting uh, some attention. Vanguard. Again, I, I'm a big fan of Vanguard. They've done more to lower the overall cost of investing for the retail investor than perhaps any company in the world. But Vanguard index funds, Vanguard mutual funds are starting to saddle their investors with capital gains. We've gotten several new clients from Vanguard, that have asked us to unwind these funds because they're getting hammered with capital gains at the end of the year. And again, Mm -hmm. they're not doing anything. They are continuing to own these funds as Vanguard rebalances these index. Some are getting sold, some are getting bought. That's passing along capital gains to the end investor, which is not what they've signed up for. Okay, so we we have one client who's a doctor makes makes a lot of money. He owns a bunch of Vanguard index funds in a taxable account. He's getting crushed in capital gains, and he's doing nothing, and he's sick of it. So he's asked us, asked Pure Portfolios, to unwind those positions. And through some direct indexing, tax loss harvesting, we've been able to unwind these positions with deep capital gains at basically a, a tax neutral event to him. So so we're not saddling him with any extra taxes. We're actually removing the capital gains that are being passed along to him at the end of the year. And I've got a blog post on that. Perhaps we can link it as well. But this is a growing problem and Vanguard has gotten a lot of slack for this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you really don't know is going to happen going into it. And it's kind of a surprise at the end of the year when you get your 1099. And that's not a fun surprise to have.
2: So to wrap this up, I know we covered a lot. One, in a, in a recessionary environment, in a bear market environment, we're, we're all going to feel pain. Everybody is feeling pain on some level. Every asset class is down. Most every asset class is down. Accept that. Embrace it. Bear markets, recessions are, are part of it. It's, it's part of the deal with investing. It's the cost of admission. Our focus then, having accepted that, shifts to things we can control. So I hope this list is a good start for you. So I would go down and, and and check each one of these, look for opportunities within your own plan to tighten things up.
1: Yeah. If you have any questions about any of these or want to have a conversation with us, you can always send an email over to insight at pureportfolios.com and we will see you in our next episode.